0: The records we have of those enslaved by the university are limited. Much of them destroyed after the university's taking of the campus. What did those enslaved people experience, and what happened to them after emancipation? Those questions are important to answer in order to understand the history of our university. So let's answer them together, but first we have to go off the record. Today, we're looking at the records of slavery on campus and discussing who built the University of Alabama. In order to do that, I talked to an expert.
1: So my name is um, Dr. Hilary Green. I'm an associate professor of history in the Department of Gender and Race Studies. I'm a historian of 19th century US history with a focus on African-American history, Civil War era, and Reconstruction.
0: So how did slavery work as an economic system?
1: Yeah, so slavery was a national or, um, institution. And even when northern states give up slavery, they still reap the benefits from an institutional history. So I always like to say slavery was a comprehensive system as it was developed in the United States, in which people were seen as property. As a result, um, and being property, they could be bought, sold, lent. Used as collateral for loans and to also trade it and willed. So when we think about property and the movements of property, we just have people who can think, talk, and speak. Um, And it's an institution that has its roots from the um, early stages of the development of the American colonies, even not just the English speaking colonies, but from the Spanish and Dutch. And in the United States officially ends um, in um, as a result of the Civil War with the 13th Amendment. And then earlier in those areas that were defeated by federal troops during the Civil War. So emancipation is a large gradual process. But by 1865, slavery as an institution and the view of African-Americans as property is no longer sanctioned. So
0: who were the first people enslaved by the university? Do we have any records of them?
1: So one of the things I like to remind people about the University of Alabama, we are an antebellum school in a state that was comes out in the antebellum era growing cotton. So when we think about King Cotton and we think about Alabama's nickname was the Cotton States, that cotton was produced by African-Americans from the beginning. There was no question about that. So the University of Alabama being in a cotton state of the antebellum era, enslaved people were here from the beginning before there were any students at UA. U.A. had um, used enslaved people to build every single campus building. Um, We have one person named Ben who's actually owned by the university before the doors even open, who helps overseas the process of this. And from our very first uh, tuition of our students, when you were a student from 1831 to 1865, your student bill would say tuition, fuel, servant, etc. And UA is a part of this um, other institutions of higher ed that use enslaved labor. We don't use slaves, we use servants. And it's that patriarchal Southern honor that we are above the um, the rabble and we are good patriarchs, we are good slave owners. So we have records from the very first enslaved person owned by the school um, to the different receipts that are exchanged for the labor of enslaved people on our campus up until the destruction of campus on April 4th, 1865.
0: What were the enslaved people's role in the university?
1: Yeah, so this is one of the other fascinating things. We have our surviving faculty minutes. So our very first meeting of the faculty in April of, um, sorry, October 3rd and 4th, 1831, outlines that students cannot bring enslaved people to UA. And in uh, it's later that month, I wouldn't say it's Halloween, but it's later October, 1831, they outlined the first duties said by um, enslaved people who worked in around the campus. They were expected to work in the dormitories. They, uh, they would help students make their bed daily. They would clean out the chamber pots, scrub the floors, helped with fires, carry water. And then um, twice a month, uh, twice a year scrub down the dormitory uh, rooms. But in the classrooms, this is where enslaved people are also there. Think about our, the way we use graduate assistance today in teaching. Enslaved people are in the background cleaning the chalkboards. They are in the background. If a student drops a book, they're picking it up. <laughs> you are doing the lab assistant work for several faculty. Uh, so faculty who use um, research assistants in their labs, it's the enslaved people who will be asked to bring in wood for fire to prep the labs for um, experiments. They are doing all that basic work. So they are doing what we would more consider about urban slavery, non-agricultural labor, even though they are cutting our grass and they cut the grass with hand sieves in large groups of teams of 30 to 40, men, but then you have individuals in individual faculty um, rooms and dorm rooms are doing something different. And so it looks like industrial slavery with some agricultural work in terms of cutting the lawn, um, growing the food um, when there's a garden that needs to be dug up and planted, enslaved people will be hired for there. If there's something that's broken, an enslaved person would be coming to replace our furniture. So they're doing all this hidden behind the scenes labor, sort of in the background, but they are in every single dorm, every single building, and they are doing every types of labor to help the institution function.
0: What did those enslaved experience during their enslavement?
1: <laughs> yes, um, um, especially um, one of the reasons why I always say men, there's very few women on campus because uh, that was from the very first bylaws. Point number nine no women were in any public buildings. So UA is trying to learn from other campuses and what happens when you have women on a predominantly male campus, and that's sexual assault and sexual violence. Um, so they try to minimize that. But then with regular men on campus, enslaved people are getting rocks thrown at them, stabbed in the hand with stuff. Because 19th century students, this is not just UA, but 19th century white men at institutions of higher ed, they're just awful. (laughs) But they're gonna be the future doctors and lawyers. They know they're gonna make more money than their their faculty members. So they're kind of just like unruly individuals. And it's not just a monopoly of UA, you look at other southern (laughs) institutions of higher ed, you see similar behavior. But people like Moses, he will be someone who is always attacked by students, and he's seen as an easy target, and he can try to appeal to President Manley and others, but he's always being attacked by students. Um, and so one of the things that students are not allowed to discipline another enslaved person, if it gets really bad, they can be expelled for it. And so what we have in some uh, what I call a book of apologies and demerits that are done, and sometimes in the faculty, students have to have to go before the faculty members to justify why they should not be expelled permanently from the institution. And it's usually after the faculty have already determined that they are getting expelled, that their student will come before the faculty, apologize for what they did, hit, get a, a second chance and then be readmitted. But you could be expelled for that because if you think about property and enslaved people being property, if Moses is to, um, hurt to the point where he loses a limb or um, dies, that's a payout to someone. Because that's insurance and liability and the school will be liable as the temporary owner of that individual for that time. So they don't want to pay out for something that happens to someone who's rented to the campus or lost because that's a loss of money. That's a loss of labor and also a loss of honor that they can not then attract students to UA because they're so unruly. And they're attracted to the elite of the elite kids, and no one's going to send their child there if they don't think it's there. So you can look at the enslaved people and how they are treated and how the university condones some of the behavior. Other times where they have to police it because it's their honor on stake.
0: What happened to those formerly enslaved by the university after their emancipation?
1: Yeah, there are records of them and that's one of the things because I do reconstruction era and history of education so I followed what happened afterwards. A lot of the former enslaved people that worked at UA, um, they become employees at UA. So we can see them and where they move so the best records we have are the census records from 1865 and 1866. It kind of get a sense of where the black community and just a general census who's left. And you start to see the neighborhoods around the school. And they all start taking on the last name of former faculty members or individuals. So there's a lot more manlies, there's a lot of garlands. So you can start seeing them there and then connect them back into the Bryce property where they become employees. But the best record honestly is the 1867 voter registration. Um, which is um, because the Reconstruction Acts of 1867, black men are registered to vote because they they are allowed to draft a new constitution. And when you go through that in the precincts, that's where you see all the children who were born at UA who are now adults and can vote (laughs) and those who survive because of the last names and where they are. So that's how you can start to track them that way. And then they become institutional founders. So they are the founders of all the major churches in town and how they are identified in the newspapers and description, ex-campus worker, UA. They'll they'll be tied to the school that way. And so three individuals that come to um, mind are Jeremiah Barnes. He was enslaved by um, Judge Washington Moody and he was the playmate of Frank Moody. Um, he does not take Moody as the last name, but he becomes a Barnes. He will do masonry work around the campus and get paid as an employee. And in the slavery records, he is Jere, J e r e, and they always talk about, oh yeah, he used to work at UA. So <laughs> give that. So that's how we know he was there. Dan Spencer. Um, He would be a businessman, um, and he would continue to sell. He becomes a businessman of desserts and ice creams. He will sell to students every day at the end, like around four o'clock in the afternoon with a cart of ice creams and desserts. And so I know like, okay, that's Dan, who becomes Dan Spencer, and he's here every day still selling his goods to the campus. And then the other one are my Garland's. Cornelius Garland and Claiborne Garland are involved in early politics, but they also established establish schools for African-American children. And they appear in the newspapers and they're tied to UA, but they also took Garland as his last, their last names. So they're tied to. So we start to see a lot of Manleys and connecting the birth records of the Manly diaries with their new last names. You're like, okay, that's not Peter. That's his RG over time. The hard people to find are the women. The women <laughs> are the hard ones there because they don't, their last names are not as known uh, because they're not in any of those voting records. They might be in those early 1865, 1866 census, but if they get married and you don't know their name. It is hard to track them. But one of my favorite women that I've been able to find is Binky. Binky was born at Uway in one of the slave cabins behind the president's mansion. Her mother, as well as some of the other women who gave birth in the, behind the president's mansion all survived into emancipation and their children survived into emancipation. And um, so Binky was still enslaved by um, President Manley but on his county plantation at the end of the civil war. And she leads a little rebellion when um, she signs a sharecropping agreement to stay and to work. Um, Overseer was gonna hit her for some reason because he suspected her of person. She fights back. She steals a wagon, takes her three kids with her and comes into town where her mother is. It's like, okay, Pinky fights back finally (laughs) after seeing her as a child growing up in UA, as someone who resisted being hired out by President Manley to the uh, local community, finally when she had the chances to the adult, she takes her kids. I'm like, okay, she's a mother. So I got three or four kids. What last thing does she take there? Um, and then after that, she disappears. So we start to see former um, enslaved people who survive into slavery, who build black Tuscaloosa. They're the churches, the masons, the schools, all that you can have track back to the UA community.
0: There is a cemetery behind the math and science education building. What do we know about those buried there?
1: That is the downside. So we know of two people who were buried there who were enslaved, and that will be William Boise Brown and Jack Rudolph, both of whom um, were owned by President Manley. And so their arrivals to UA when Manley's president and their deaths are noted by him. Other enslaved people die on our campus. However, there's two problems. One is they, were, they die and no one noted their name. They just bury them there. Or the other is when someone would die um, and you have communications to their enslaver saying, hey, such and such died. Do you want them buried here or do you want to transport them to your plantation? So there is no surviving list of who's actually buried um, in the what was the black section of the cemetery because students died here too. And some of the students who died at UA are buried in the larger cemetery and then get reinterred so the cemetery that fragment we have now was much larger than what it was um, in the original sake but we don't have because of the April 4th um, campus destruction a detailed list of all the people who were interred there who did that work and that's one of the things that I always say with this work it's a fragment and you have to build upon other things, but there's some things we'll never know. And that's one of them was how many other than those two and where. And uh, based on what I could tell in the archival record, where the transportation building is and that parking deck is, I think that's where the black section was, where the enslaved people were. And where the fragment is now by the um, the newly renamed biology building. I can't think of this full name right now. That was where um, the white students and the Pratt family was buried th- uh, there, but there was definitely a color line.
0: How do we acknowledge our campus's history with slavery?
1: Yeah, so for me, I think it's a complex question, but one of the things is we don't need myths, we don't need lies and fabrications, and what we need are truthful stories and histories of our past. And I think that's one of the reasons when I do this work, it's not this monolithic slave community. I'm like, no, who were the people? What were their experiences? And even if it's, we only know one date that they were there or the case of Luna, the one time she appears is in this assault and it gets documented by Manly. They made a mark on this institution and built it to where we are today. So for me, I look at it, who are the people who built UA? Not just the people who have building names, not just those who we want to prop up. There, I'm like, no. What's the other side of that? And and I think we need to be honest with both of those. And so for me, humanizing the narrative, telling all aspects of the narrative, including the very negative experience of women, to the people who built the buildings, like William of Maxwell Hall, and the building of that dome, and I'm like. We can point to and say, "Who built that? Where's his marker? Um, how we tell this history to students and other stakeholders coming to the campus, but more importantly, how do we tell the community story? Because if the churches in Tuscaloosa are the, coming from the former enslaved people at UA, what is UA's relationship with First African Baptist and all those other churches today? Because they're linked past." So for me, it's how do we use this history to bridge conversations, but also say this is a shared history, shared past to build a more inclusive shared future. So, I look at the legacy that way, but for me, um, as I always say, I don't talk about slavery in my own work. Um, I like to talk about freedom, and I like to talk about Reconstruction. So for me, is how do we tell the full arc of history, even the parts that are not always comfortable for me? But I know I'm walking on some of the same grounds that these informally enslaved people made, and without them, I wouldn't be here. So how do we go from that, where we started to where we are today? And I, and it's, as much as I hate progress narratives, it is a progress narrative. You away from owning people and putting their tuition, like their bills to students to where we are now. Like, so if we embrace what we are now, we have to embrace all of it. So -hmm. this be honest with what we're embracing.
0: There's still a lot that we don't know about those enslaved at the university, and more we might never know because those documents were burned. However, Dr. Green encourages everyone to remember those we do know.
1: Yeah, and, but, but what we can do, uh, if that's, that's one of the reasons why I, um, I have, like I say, I always say the names and research the names. And I look at it as like a Vietnam Ball Memorial. Like, we know these names now. Some document that's going to be hidden in someone's like, basement or some attic is going to add new names. And you're always adding to that walls name as new people come in. We can always add and build what was lost. And so that, I think, is one of the reasons why it's ongoing. It's not just we're going to know everything is there. It's just our fragmentary nature and what happened on April 4th means what we know is what we know right now. It doesn't mean gonna with new information coming online that we might not be able to expand. And by humanizing, bringing in, I'm also committed to make sure we learn more about the women. Like there's, if, what other women are on the campus? What are their experiences? And what happened after freedom and what do they do? And do we have any descendants in our midst? And one of the things I will say is, we do have descendants still in Tuscaloosa they had not identified themselves. Um, so I've had um, the living descendant of Jeremiah Barnes reach out to me. She's a school teacher who lives in Ohio. And one of the things that she reached out to me for was because of the website I had online and seen the news on the tour. So she felt, she's like, oh, UA has changed enough. That I can tell you like, yeah, that's my ancestor. We, if we do that, we can actually heal and bring in bonds, but The concern is, what do we do? Because the tendency is not to tell the history. (laughs) It's to erase, simplify, make pretty the history.
0: I want to thank this episode's expert for speaking to me and you for listening to this episode. This has been Off the Record, a podcast diving into the history of the university and the state of Alabama. I'm your host, Carson Silas, logging off.